Exodus chapter number 20. We come this week to the fourth commandment, which is easily the most controversial of the Ten Commandments. It was controversial during the time of Christ, and it has been controversial uh, for different reasons ever since the time of Christ. And we'll try to address some of those misconceptions surrounding the fourth commandment as we consider what I'm titling tonight, A Day for the Lord from the Fourth Commandment. So we'll begin our reading in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon the reading of your word. We pray now that you would help us as we study your word. Give us insight. Give us instruction from your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Most of you have probably already noticed, at least maybe not, maybe not in the past few weeks, but prior to that, that most of the Ten Commandments are framed in a negative way. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Adultery, hypocrisy, infidelity, unwarranted violence, and covetousness are all forbidden in this negative form. Thou shalt not. But there are two commandments in the center of the ten that are expressed positively. This fourth commandment, uh, which begins, remember the Sabbath day. Uh, so the fourth commandment is a, uh, is a commandment to set aside a day for rest. And then the fifth commandment is also expressed positively to honor our father and mother. Everything else in the Ten Commandment is a prohibition. It is something that is forbidden from our lives. And what this shows us is that the type of society that God leads and that God builds is, is that when all of the debris of sin is cleared away, that the society is built around a time of joy, rest, and worship and it is one that is built on a generational unity and harmony. And it's really a wonderful thing, isn't it? I mean, doesn't that sound like something? Doesn't that sound like a society that we all would love to live in? A day of joy and rest and worship. A life that is centered around a day of rest and joy and worship with our families, with our children, with our parents, with our grandparents. That's the type of society that the Lord desired for his people to build here in the Ten Commandments. And it's a very simple formula. In fact, it almost sounds too simple. It sounds a little bit too simplistic, to be honest with you. But it's not. That's, that is a formula for a great life, for a joy-filled life. And it is the recipe which God gives to his people as they begin to build their society. Now, as we consider this fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, I've divided the message into two major parts. First, we will consider the specifics of the command, the specifics of the command, and secondly, we'll consider the significance of the Sabbath command. So first of all, the specifics of the Sabbath command. Look with me at verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The first specific command given in the Sabbath commandment is to remember 
the Sabbath. It's to remember the Sabbath. Now the command here that is codified here in the Ten Commandments for God's chosen people is, as I just said, it is to remember the Sabbath commandment, which indicates to us that the Sabbath had already been put into practice by God's people prior to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus 20. In fact, if you'll look with me back at Exodus chapter 16, we see at least, uh, 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 we see in Exodus chapter 16 that they were already participating in, the, in Sabbath observance. In Exodus chapter 16 verse Let's see, verse 23, And he said unto them, This is that which the Lord hath said, Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which ye will bake today, and see that, that, that ye will seethe, and that which remaineth over lay up for, your, for, for you to be kept until the morning. This commandment really goes all the way down to verse number 30. Uh, and and this, is, this is at least the first time that we find God's chosen people observing the Sabbath. After God had delivered His chosen people from Egypt, from Egyptian bondage, He had given them manna daily uh, for their food. But He gave them manna six days a week, and He gave them the specific command that they go out every day and they gather what was needed for that day and that day alone, no extra, or, or else the extra would, uh, would waste, would, would grow with worms and would waste. But on the sixth day... God's people were to go out and to gather double the daily portion because on the seventh day, they were not to go out and gather. They were to observe the Sabbath. They were to remain in their houses. They were to observe the Sabbath and rest. So in Exodus chapter 20, when the Lord says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, in part what the Lord is saying is to remember the Sabbath day, to remember what has already been given to you in command form back in Exodus chapter 16. But the command to remember the Sabbath is, is a little bit of a double meaning. It does not just merely mean to remember the Sabbath day, to remember on a weekly basis to, to, to observe the Sabbath rest. But there's something else as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are given a second time. Deuteronomy stands for the second giving of the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are given a second time. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when you come to the fourth commandment, in fact, let's turn there uh, just, just for briefly for a moment to see this. But in Deuteronomy 5, when you come to the fourth commandment, there's an additional detail that is not found in Exodus 20 that is given to us in this second giving of the law. In Deuteronomy 5, verses 14 and 15, we see this commandment of the Sabbath given. Verses, verse 13, Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. We skip down to verse 15 and we see the additional detail that is not given in Exodus 20. Verse 15, And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt. And that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. So on the Sabbath day, they were not just to remember to observe the Sabbath day by resting on that day. But they were to remember what God had previously done for them. They were to remember that God had delivered them from Egyptian bondage. Implicit in the Sabbath commandment is that God's people forget the goodness of God. That they have the tendency to slide away from remembrance 
of the goodness and the graciousness of God to His people. And so the Sabbath is, is instilled into their week to help them to remember, not only to remember the Sabbath, but to remember the grace and the goodness that God has so abundantly poured out on their lives. You know, isn't, isn't it just like us to be like the Israelites and to forget the goodness and the grace of God in our lives? How soon we forget the blessings that God has so abundantly poured into our lives. And we, just like Israel, need to be reminded, really on a weekly basis, really on a daily basis, of what the Lord has done for us in pouring out His grace and goodness to us. And this is really, now don't get ahead of me, but this is one of the purposes of our weekly gatherings. Now again, don't get ahead of me because we may not be going where you think we're going. But we gather on a weekly basis to remind ourselves what God has done for us and how He has poured out His goodness in our lives. And let me add this, that to remember is not just to bring to the forefront of mind what we have set, on the, set, in, the back of, set in the back of our minds, but to remember is to commemorate, it is to celebrate. Think about how you remember your anniversary. Sir, you do not gain brownie points if you simply remember the date of your anniversary. There is a requirement to commemorate, to celebrate, to go buy flowers, to go buy some jewelry, to take your wife out to eat. That is how you remember your anniversary. And so it was with the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was not just a day to bring to, bring to the forefront of mind what God had done for them. But it was to appreciate, it was to commemorate, it was to celebrate the goodness of God in their lives. It was to praise God for His goodness in their lives. So the first specific command is to remember the Sabbath day, to remember on the Sabbath day as well. The second specific command, the primary specific command, is to rest on the Sabbath day. We see this in verses 9 and 10 of Exodus 20. But before we look at these two verses, I want you to look down at verse number 11 where we see the pattern for the Sabbath given to us in verse number 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The seven-day week is, is the one part of our calendar that, does, that has no scientific basis. The day uh, is formed because of the rotation of the earth. The, the months are according to the phases of the moon. The year is according to the rotation of the earth around the sun, unless you're a flat earther. Uh, but if you are, well, good luck with that. Um, but what about weeks? Where is the scientific basis for the seven-day week? There is none. But there is a scriptural basis for the week, and it's given to us right there at the beginning of the Bible. God instilled and, and, and installed and created the first week when He created the earth in six days and He rested on the seventh day. That first week, that creation week, which by the way, if you're here and you believe that God created the earth over a long period of time and not in six literal days, you're going to have a really hard time when you come to Exodus 20 and you see the pattern that God uses here. Nevertheless, uh, setting that aside, the Lord establishes for us a pattern in the first, first book of the Bible in Genesis when He created the earth in six days, six literal days, and He rested on the seventh day. That is the pattern 
with which God uses to regulate the regular rhythms of God's chosen people. Now, we need to stop, we need to take a quick time out, and be on the same page about, about this matter of God resting. Because I think there might be a little theological confusion about what it means when the Bible says that God rested on the seventh day. Because God is not like us. God does not get weary. He does not rest like we do. He's not like us. So what does it mean when the Bible says that God rested? Well, let me give you two things. First of all, it simply means that he ceased from his labor. On six days, God created the earth, and on the seventh day, he ceased from his active creation work. Uh, on the seventh day, he was done with his work. He declared that his creation was very good. He was satisfied with his creation, and he sat back, and he in, sat, sat back is probably a bad phrasing, but he, 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 he ceased from his labor, labor and enjoyed his creation work. But the second meaning of God resting is that he began to reign over his creation. He not only ceased from his active creation work, but he began to reign over that which he had created. He had established it in the first six days, and now on the seventh day he rested from his work and began to reign over it. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah describes the future reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in these terms. His rest shall be glorious. So the author of Isaiah gives to us a... Uh, he, 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 he likens rest to the reign of the future reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only place that there is rest in the entire universe is the place where the Lord God is reigning and ruling. So when the Lord rested, He began to reign and rule over His creation. Now those two ideas are very important. Because as we look to what the Sabbath means, what the Lord requires of His people in the Sabbath, it's important to remember what it means that God rested because that's likely what, is to mean, what God is to mean when He commands his, his children to rest on the Sabbath day. So look with me now at verses 9 and 10 where we see this specific command given, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. As God gives the regulations for the rhythms of life in these verses, there are a few implications that I'd like to point out. First of all, God endorses and even commands work. Six days shalt thou labor. That's part of the command that there are six days that are set aside for work. Work is not, at least in Scripture, work is not treated as a, as a necessary evil of life, but rather it is one of the primary purposes of life. And there are some that, that erroneously think that work is a byproduct of the fall, that work was introduced after man sinned in the Garden of Eden. That's not so. God placed man in the garden to dress and to keep the garden. He was given a purpose, a job, a work to do. And I believe that, in fact, I believe that work and worship are two essential and eternal functions of man. That for all of eternity, we will be working and we will be worshiping. We will be working and we will be worshiping. Work is not 
a curse. It's a, in fact, it's a gift. It's a gift given to us, just like the garden was a gift given to man, just as the woman was a gift given to man. Work was a gift given to man. But let's be honest. Work does not feel like a gift, does it? I doubt there's a person here that enjoys Monday more than Friday. You look forward to Friday by the time you get, to, get, through, get through Monday. And that, that is the effect of the curse. What, what sin has done, it has made work hard. It has made work laborious, difficult to do. But we should still recognize that work is our calling as man. And I'm not going to turn this into a discussion on the theology of work. But I think we've got to be careful in how we think about work. Because work is good. And I think there are many laypersons in the church today that have a major disconnect between their calling in life and their work. There's almost like there's a spiritual life and then there is a work life. And that is not so. And it harkens back to the third commandment where we take the name of the Lord our God and we are to carry His name well. In the third commandment, we, 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 uh, we are prohibited from taking the name of God in vain. And we, we won't go back and discuss that. But we take the name of God in vain in our work by doing sloppy work, by treating our co-workers and our customers without kindness, without, uh, without appreciation. Uh, when we show up late to the job site, we are taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. But on the other hand, when we work hard, when we go above and beyond, when we treat our customers and our co-workers fairly and kindly, we actually do a great service to the name of the Lord our God. We, we elevate the name of Christ in society, uh, granted, of course, that we are public in our Christianity. So the, the first implication from this is that work is good. It is not a necessary evil. It is a good thing that is given to us and is commanded to us uh, by God. The second command, or the second implication, rather, is that God endorses, yea, even commands rest. Now, it's so ironic that in this world where we detest work, that we can't stop working. With the advent of the smartphone and computers, and particularly the smartphone, work goes with you wherever you go. So you always have your email on you. And, in fact, you're always expected to answer your email uh, uh, quickly, in a quick, quick manner. 10 o'clock at night, Sunday morning, oh, it doesn't matter, it's just a quick phone call, it's just a quick email. The ubiquitous nature of the smartphone has made work go with us wherever we go. And if you're here and you're not in a knowledge-based field, but you're in a physically-based field, the demands are, are equally as great. Uh, overtime is incentivized. You get time and a half oftentimes for working extra time. And if you're here and you're self-employed, well, uh, you, know the joys of, you know the joys of working all the time. If you're self-employed, you're likely working seven days a week and if you were to take a day off, you, you probably wouldn't even know what to do with yourself. And many of you can, can, can attest to the truthfulness of that. Work is, it is, it is, it is ubiquitous in our society. It is, uh, we overwork on, on, on average. Most of us overwork, I would suggest. But there's one major problem to that constant busyness, that constant work, that constant hive mind of work that we put ourselves through. It's not as God intended. God intended for, for, for a work-rest 
balance. Six days for work, one day for rest. And let me caution you here against the mindset of a workaholic. It is often portrayed, the, work, the mindset of a workaholic is often portrayed as a virtuous one, as one of either necessity or one of virtue. He just can't stop working. But let me suggest to you that a workaholic mindset is actually the mindset of a fool. It's one who can't see how he is hurting himself. Because when you have a workaholic mindset, when you work to the exclusion of rest and never take time off, what you actually begin to do is you, you, or what you will begin to see over time is leaks in other important areas of life. So you work late into the night and you neglect your family. You work so much that your prayer life begins to suffer. And, 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 and if you don't see that, that, that's really foolish behavior to work to the exclusion of rest. So God gives us the Sabbath. He gives his people the Sabbath as a gift to establish a rhythm and a balance to, to work and rest. But there's one further implication, and I hurry, of this command. And it's, it's subtle, but it's still there. When we set, a, set, when we set aside a day for rest, what we, are, what we are subtly doing is acknowledging the rulership of God in our life. See, work gives us the illusion of control. We work because we need to be in control, because we need to make more money. We work incessantly because we don't think that our lives can run if we don't work incessantly. We think that we are in control, and because we think we're in control, we work and we work and we work. But when we rest, what we are implicitly doing is we are acknowledging that God is in control and that God is ultimately the provider of the good things in our life. So when we fail to rest as intended in the Sabbath commandment, we are, we are refusing to acknowledge God's rulership over our lives. So we see, the, we see excuse me, the specifics of the Sabbath commandment. But then I want you to see the significance of the Sabbath commandment. Now consider first the significance of the Sabbath commandment to the nation of Israel. Now, it's hard to overstate the importance of this commandment to the nation of Israel. Their society really revolved around this commandment of the Sabbath. It was the center of their societal life. And this commandment is expanded upon in the Old Testament. Uh, in addition to the regular weekly Sabbath, the Sabbath became a pattern for other parts of their societal life. So slaves were set free after six years uh, the, how, how they cared for the land followed the pattern of, of the Sabbath, six years, one year of rest. Uh, there was also the year of Jubilee, which was a sort of super Sabbath after 49 years, seven years of seven, or seven times seven. There was the year of Jubilee. But interestingly, the Sabbath is also the least intuitive of all the Ten Commandments. Uh, by that I mean it's the, it's the law that is not written on the heart of man. You know, in Romans 2, Paul speaks to that, the law that is written on the heart of man. We're not going to go into that too much, but, but basically what Paul is speaking to is that every man has an objective moral code, a universal moral code that is written upon his heart. And we generally see those laws in the Ten Commandments. Man knows that adultery is wrong. Man knows that stealing is wrong, that 
covetousness is wrong. He knows that deep in his heart. He may convince himself that, 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 is, that it is not wrong, but he knows deep in his heart that it is wrong. Man knows intuitively that there is a God. He may convince himself otherwise, but he knows that there is a God and that he is accountable to that God. And you don't need scripture to you don't really need scripture to understand these things are wrong. Uh, nobody needs scripture to understand that adultery is initially repulsive. Everybody understands that initially. So these are the laws that are typically, I, I would say, I would suggest, are written on the hearts of universal mankind. It is what everybody knows and accepts as, uh, uh, knows anyway, at least intuitively, that they are wrong. But the one commandment in this way stand, that stands out is the fourth commandment, the commandment of the Sabbath. It is the one commandment that is not intuitively written on the heart of man. And I believe the reason for that is because the Sabbath is exclusively in Israel, uh, in a Jewish command. It is exclusively given to the nation of Israel. In fact, it is given as a sign of the covenant between God and Israel here that is codified here in Exodus 20 and Exodus 19. Look with me very quickly at Exodus chapter 31. We see the Lord explicitly say this in Exodus 31 in verses 12 to 17. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Uh, verse, let's see, verse 16, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath there throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel. So the Sabbath commandment really is, it is central to the Ten Commandments. It is central to this, uh, this mosaic, this old covenant that is given to us here in Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus 20. And, it, and that really helps explain why the punishment to breaking the Sabbath commandment is so stern. In Numbers 15, there's a man that is found picking up sticks on the Sabbath day, picking up sticks. And they basically arrest the man. They inquire of the Lord what they should do of the man. And the Lord tells them that they should stone him. They should stone him to death. Seems a little harsh. I mean, if we're being honest, it seems a little harsh for picking up sticks on the wrong day. Does, does it not? Are we willing to admit that that seems a little harsh? Some of you are a little sanctimonious here this evening. <laughs> When God sent Judah into captivity, it was due to their breaking of the Sabbath. In fact, the length of their captivity in Babylonian captivity corresponded to how long they had broken the Sabbath commandment regarding, uh, regarding the land. It's, again, it's a little excessive if we're just being honest. It's a little excessive. I wouldn't expect God to send His chosen people into exile for refusing to let the land rest. Seems a little excessive. But when you understand that the Sabbath is central to the covenant that God has made with them, you understand why God punishes it in such a severe way. Now, I understand why the Lord would, would cause them, would tell them to stone a man to death for adultery, for idolatry. But for picking up sticks, it's a little harder to see. But what it was implicitly stating is that they didn't care about their relationship with God. When they broke the Sabbath commandment, what they were saying is that I don't care about this covenant with God. I don't care about my relationship 
with God. And, and that's, that's important. That's an important takeaway. Because the Sabbath is not really about regulations. The Sabbath is about their relationship with God. It's about their covenantal relationship with the Lord God. And when you come to the time of Jesus, the focus has totally shifted. They are not at all concerned about their relationship with the Lord God. They're concerned almost exclusively about their heavy restrictions and regulations around the, the, the Sabbath commandment. And they had a lot of silly debates around this commandment. One of, the, one of the questions that some of the rabbis would debate was, if your grandma fell in a field on the Sabbath day, were you allowed to go help her up on the Sabbath day? If you found an egg laid under a hen on the Sabbath day, were you allowed to eat it? How were you to ascertain as to when the egg was laid? When was the work done? Was it done on the Sabbath or was it done on the day prior? These were the silly questions that were asked. And it totally neglected what the Sabbath was all about, about a covenantal relationship with God. So the significance of the Sabbath commandment to Israel, and then consider finally the significance of the Sabbath commandment to us, to the church. Now when we think of the Sabbath, I know what everybody here is thinking about. Sunday. It's very easy, well, Brother Eric, Brother Eric's not. Theologically sophisticated Brother Eric is not. We'll get there in a second, Brother Eric. It's very easy. In fact, it's almost too easy to make the connection between Sabbath rest and Sunday worship. That's where our minds automatically go. The connection between Sabbath, Sabbath rest and Sunday worship. And I've already made the connection once before tonight. And for most of us, that's really right where our minds go. But the Sabbath does not really point us to Sunday. The Sabbath points us to the Savior. See, the Sabbath is anchored in the past. It's anchored in the creation week. That's the pattern for the Sabbath. But the Sabbath also anticipates the future. It anticipates the Redeemer of the Sabbath, the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides for us a rest, a rest that we can enter in. In fact, look with me at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews gives us some clarity on the Sabbath rest as it pertains to us today. In Hebrews 4 verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now we can't really expound upon that passage. Uh, we cannot do justice to that passage in our short time remaining. But basically what the author is saying is that, that Jesus finished His work on the cross and through the tomb, and just like His Father, He ceased from His work. Just as the Father ceased from His creative work, the Son ceased from His redemptive work. And just as God made the Sabbath rest available to His chosen people, so the Son makes His rest available to His people who can enter into that rest through belief. But unlike the Sabbath rest, Christ's rest is not about physical rest. That's not at all what His rest is about, at least not yet. Christ's rest is about spiritual rest. It's a, an eternal rest that is unavailable entirely through the observance of the Sabbath. 
And here's what, here's what we're saying in regards to Christ and the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath. We do not have to work because Christ worked for us. We don't work and rest so that we can have a relationship with God. We rest because we have a relationship with God. We don't have to strive for eternal life. We don't have to work in order to earn or obtain God's favor. The Lord did for us already what we could not do for ourselves. He obtained for us what we could not obtain for ourselves. Now once we have entered into the Lord's rest, and by the way, it is a glorious rest. What a wonderful truth it is that He has provided for us an eternal spiritual rest. Because now we under the rulership of God have peace with God. What a wonderful truth. We have peace with God. Peace with God through the rest of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now that we have entered into the Lord's rest, we can consider the specifics of the Sabbath commandment as they relate to the church today. Because again, we all make the connection between Sabbath rest and Sunday worship. And there are certain similarities between Sabbath rest and Sunday worship. And so it's easy to connect the dots between the two. But over the years, there have been some erroneous views about how Sabbath rest relates to our Sunday worship. Let me give you two erroneous views, and then we'll, then we'll be done. There are some that still attempt to observe the fourth commandment as it is commanded in Exodus chapter 20. The Seventh-day Adventists, for example, they, they meet together on Saturday. That's why they're called the Seventh-day Adventists, to worship, to do their worship services because they believe that the fourth commandment is still just as much in effect as it was in uh, Exodus chapter 20. And they are consistent, at least somewhat, in their following of that, that belief. We'll give them that. But the pro primary problem with that view, with that position, is that the New Testament records uh, records for us, rather, the early church practice of worship. And the early church did not meet on the Sabbath. The early church met on the first day of the week. There are also two passages in the New Testament that deal with Sabbath, uh, this, this, the, the keeping of the Sabbath in Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 14. And the verdict of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that Sabbath observance is a matter of Christian liberty. In fact, in Romans 14, Paul makes it clear that if a believer wants to go to the synagogue on Sabbath, he is more than welcome to do so as long as he doesn't hold that against his brother in Christ. If the Sabbath was still in effect as it was in Exodus chapter 20, I think we could expect to find a little bit more evidence that it's still in effect in the New Testament. But rather, we find evidence to the contrary, that the church did not observe the Sabbath, and they had questions about whether or not they should observe the Sabbath, and Paul certainly didn't answer those in a way that, that, that would have caused them to believe that they should keep the Sabbath. Now, the second erroneous view is what we might call Lord's Day uh, Sabbatarianism is what it's uh, typically called. And the idea is that the Sabbath regulations have been transferred over to the Lord's Day. That now in the church we meet on the first day of the week, but the first day of the week is to be the Christian Sabbath. Some people would even call the, the, our Sunday worship uh, Christian Sabbath. But again, the passages that I've just referenced, Colossians 2 and Romans 14, 
seem quite opposed to that view. That Sabbath, the, the ordinances of the Sabbath day are not at all transferred to Sunday, but that the rules and the regulations of the Sabbath day are set aside. They are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and they are left in the Old Testament. The reality is that the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, it is our, our, our Lord's Day worship is built on a different foundation than the Sabbath day was built on in the first place. The Lord's Day is not a new Sabbath. The Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and a celebration of the dawning of the new creation that Christ has worked in His resurrection. That's primarily why the church moved its meeting to the first day of the week because the Lord Jesus got up from the grave on the first day of the week. And another important distinction between the Sabbath and Sunday is that the Sabbath's primary focus is on rest. Rest. Worship is included in the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, but it is secondary. It is not the primary concern of, of the Old Testament's command regarding the Sabbath day. But when you come to the New Testament, the, the primary focus, the exclusive focus of the Lord's day is worship. It's not rest. It's worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ for what He has done for us. So on the Lord's day, we gather together. We fellowship around the Word. We are confronted by the Word of God. We minister to one another. We feast together. We give offerings. We sing psalms and hymns together. And some of us rest. And some of us don't. Brother Squires, Brother Dennis, I think you can attest to this. Many pastors, for many pastors, Sunday is the most exhausting day of the week. So it's quite hypocritical to suggest that Sunday should be a day of rest when the pastor is working harder than he works the rest of the week. So the proper view of the Sabbath as it relates to us is that it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We do not observe the Sabbath in any form in the church, church, church age. With that said, though, there are principles embedded in the Sabbath that are good for us to carry over. It is still important to rest. The, the principle of rest is not merely embedded into the Sabbath commandment, but is embedded into the creation week, which we can certainly look to as, 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 the, as, as the place where we pattern our need for rest. Uh, need for rest. But again, the Lord's Day does not have to be that day of rest. It can be, day, it can be any, day of, any day of the week. We are not commanded to rest on the Lord's Day like they were to rest on the Sabbath day. And we have to be careful in regards to Sunday that we not be like the Pharisees were in Jesus' day regarding the Sabbath, where Sunday becomes all about rules and restrictions and regulations about what you can't do. Because the reality is that Sunday is about one thing, what you do, worship, worshiping the Lord. Now, with that said, there are things that you should not do on the Lord's day. And you should not do anything that hinders you from worship. That's what you shouldn't do. So I would, I would say unequivocally it is wrong to schedule your grocery pickup for Sunday morning at 1030. Unequivocally it is wrong to go out on the boat at 1030 on Sunday morning. It is wrong to plan a family gathering that is going to keep you from the worship with God's, God's people. But aside from that, but aside from what keeps you from worship, I'll let God be the judge. Should you play touch, touch football? I'll let God be the judge. Should you mow the grass on Sunday? I'll let God be the judge. These things are not explicitly forbidden in Scripture, 
But here's, here's what's important, that you worship God on the Lord's Day. And let's be honest. If we survey the state of Christianity, in America especially, we are far closer to neglecting the Lord's Day than we are to imposing, restricting regulations against our observance of the Lord's Day. But there is something special about Sunday, isn't there? It's a special day. The old family wakes up early, begins to get ready for church. Maybe you put on some Christian music. Maybe you argue as you get ready. <laughs> the kids do their final preparations to say their verses. Mom begins to get ready for Sunday dinner. It's a wonderful day. When we come to church, it's just a delight. See people you love, fellowship with people that you love and have commonality with. And the whole day really revolves around church activity. Maybe you come to church a little early for choir practice. Maybe you come to church a little early on Sunday evening for choir practice. But the whole day just revolves around worship. It's a wonderful day. It's a wonderful day. And I would never want to lose that. It should stay a sanctified, holy day. A day that we set apart for the worship of God. And I know that for many of us, myself included, that much of what I am as a Christian today, whatever that may be, is due to what happened on this day, on Sunday. That day, of the, that day of the week. It's a special day. It's not a day to diminish. It's not a day to, to diminish, but it is a day to elevate, to set aside for the worship of the Lord our God. Not because it's the Sabbath. It's not the Sabbath. But we set it aside because we have been granted rest through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ that has been completed by His resurrection.